Think of it in a pyramid. The foundation of a pyramid is the most important part. Solid foundation, stable structure. And a large base allows for a higher pyramid. No base, no structure. And as we are all beginners, it's important to always speak about the base to make sure that 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 foundation is not shaky. And even if we've been engaged with Dharma for decades, the base is still always vital. Now, the base is the foundation and has a truth to it and is important, but that is not all of the Dharma. It's also very important that we have a taste and we become grounded in other aspects of Dharma. But we can't do that without an established base. You know, the established base means we have to be willing to be present, we have to be, have a connected, inclusive mind, we have to recognize how unknowable things are and how little we actually know. We have to have some perspective on thoughts and feelings, recognizing they're not me. We have to recognize kindness, love as the foundation. And this moment is timeless. Those are all just foundational things, which as we work with all the teachings and all the practices people have done, all those insights and many more elaborate elaborations of them are available. But we can say that the Dharma is in one way in four categories, four stages. Slightly different model than the pyramid model. The first one is the rational understanding. And the second is an experiential understanding. The third is a functional understanding. And the fourth is a transcendent understanding. And I think we can think about this like driving a car. We can read and know all the mechanics of driving a car. We know all the controls, the functions of the controls and the signs. We can even understand how an internal combustion engine works. But if we've never had the direct experience of driving a car, something is lacking. And even if we have a taste of driving, we drive around the block or we drive to school or work and back. A taste of driving is very different than a rational understanding, but a taste of driving is not a fully mature driver. The functional person who can really function, who can drive in 12 lanes of traffic in LA or drive cross country or drive in other countries or drive sports cars or trucks or big trucks, who can drive automatics and manual electric vehicles. So a lot of us, and then the, the last stage is that we are driving is so good driving is so much a part of us that there is no thought or consideration. It's just is the, the way things unfold. So we know the basics and we can even share them with them. And there are definitely people in the world who 
write whole books about what they have learned, about that basic level. But then we come to Sashin, we begin regular practice, and we encounter the usual challenges. And we find that understanding is not particularly helpful. No matter what we have read and understand, or think we understand, about Dharma or any of the wisdom teachings, when we encounter real problems, when we encounter real sickness, when we encounter real loss, what we thought we knew doesn't work. If at this point, when we encounter some crisis, something is taken away from us, or our source of income disappears, or whatever crisis happens to be, if we keep insisting that our former thinking was right, then we often stop practicing, and we just spend time in blame and justification. But to begin real practice, We have to come to those crises points and then apply our experience of the Dharma. We have to come to crisis points and recognize that we do not know. And it's only when we recognize we don't know and have faith that there is more to this There is a solution that we can begin practice. We then walk the embodied path of practice. So everybody here comes to Sashin. We begin encountering pain or boredom or whatever you encounter. And at that point, that's where we apply Dharma practice. That's where we see, is it real or not? I was thinking about this and um, realizing that when I was in my 20s, um, I was just inundated with stories of the great masters and the great masters' teachings and their biographies and their lives. And I realized that when we usually, if we're doing koans, then that becomes part of the koan tradition, is talking about the lineage and the lineage teachers and the whole tradition and giving people a a real feeling for the the tradition is so much bigger and broader than our little experience of it, our understanding. But to work on koans, you have to first have a fundamental insight into the oneness of things, emptiness of things, connectedness of things. And without that, it's really hard to work on the many different kinds and many different levels of koans. Because without a significant insight in Dharma, we keep thinking we know something. We keep thinking we know what's right. We keep thinking we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. And it's the more we know, the more stuck we are. And so the initial koans, like, Mu, or who is it that's carrying this corpse around, or the sound of one hand, or before your parents are born, are all geared to help penetrate, enlarge, go beyond, become one with that which is 
not the conceptual mind. The emptiness, silence, space, inclusivity. And there are many ways of actually touching that. But koans have been the traditional, a traditional way in the Zen school. But we don't tend to do that right now. So what I thought I would do today is talk a little bit about, or quote some and read some from some of the great masters. Um, so you can hear their, their take on this. Someone was telling me that they listened to one of my old talks from a couple of decades ago and said, you're still saying the same thing you were saying then. <laughs> so I figure, you know, rather than being the same boring thing that I keep saying, I'll we'll do so, let somebody else say it. <laughs> so this is a Master Boshan. Master Boshan was a Ming Dynasty a teacher. I think it went uh, the Tang Dynasty, and the Sung Dynasty, the Yuan Dynasty, and the Ming Dynasty. <clears throat> so he was in the like 16th century, no, maybe early 17th century, in China. And he was a Soto, a Soto priest in that in that lineage, Sao Sung lineage. Um, his biography, briefly, he left household life at age 16 after hearing lectures from the Lotus Sutra. He became a monk and practiced in the Tendai method of stillness and contemplation, Samatha Vipassana, which we all are familiar with. And then for, after doing that for five years, he began studying um, under an eminent Chan master, And he began practicing with koans and the um, huato. Huato is a, is a term that is the, means the kind of nub of the koan, the, the essential point of the koan. So you have uh, the basic koan, a monk in all seriousness asked the great master Joshu, is it true that even a scurly thing like a rat has a Buddha nature? And Joshu replied, "Moo." And so rather than going through that whole thing, you just focus on, on the mu, mu. Is it true that even us, even we, have a Buddha nature? And if so, where is it? Why don't we see it? Is it true that all beings, even those we hate, have a, a true, pristine, clear nature? If so, why is it so inobvious? And this great master, Joshu, just said in response, Mu. Literally, no, nothing. Sometimes he would say yes, something. But the, the point is that expression itself, that coming from the great master Joshu's mouth and embodying, expressing the truth that includes this particular question, part of the koan. Now the koan is not figuring it out. You know, we all start figuring out things with our brain, start looking in books. But the koan is about becoming Master Joshu, becoming the state of mind that can say, offer that mu, becoming the state of mind that is, gives a direct and immediate answer to this koan of have or have not. And it's not about figuring out the have or have not. It's about becoming Joshua. 
Muman says, walking hand in hand with the great masters, eyebrow to eyebrow. So it's about immersing ourselves so completely that we drop I, me, and mine and allow the wisdom of, of that master to be embodied in this present moment. And because of I, me, and my, it's hard work. So continuing with Master Boshan, he had numerous insights. Um, Here's what he says. What beginning Chan practitioners should know. At the very onset of practice, arouse the aspiration to break through the mind of birth and death. Arouse the aspiration to break through the mind that lives in, sees, is afraid of birth and death. With determined resolve, see through the universe, body and mind, and realize that everything is the coming together of provisional conditions without a substantial self. If you cannot discover the original great principle that is within you, the mind of birth and death will never be shattered. When the mind of birth and death is not shattered, the slaying ghost of impermanence will continue without end in your each and every thought haunting you. How will you ever stop it? Just take this single thought of shattering the mind of birth and death like a battering ram that knocks down a gate. So that that single thought is the the essence of the koan, the wato of the koan. There are many koans in this particular one. You know, what is it that is beyond birth and death? You should be like someone sitting in the midst of a raging fire wanting to escape. Do not step haphazardly. Do not stand still. Give rise to no other thoughts and don't count on the help of others. At this point, throw away your concerns about the raging fire, your very life, your anticipation of others' helps, help, and with no other thoughts, refusing to halt, but directly dash forward. If you can break out of the raging fire, then you become a person of great abilities. Now there are two you know, different threads of practice that we often talk about. One is the, the practice of, of just being, of still illumination. This is a, a Soto Zen master who practiced in that tradition, but he also says that concentration is vital. And whether you're concentrating on a Watteau, on a koan, or on still illumination, silent illumination, spacious illumination, that concentration needs to be complete. Now he's talking, this is again a a Soto master who's talking about the questioning, curiosity. 
In the course of practice, the most crucial thing is to arouse the doubt sensation. What is this doubt? Not knowing where you came from before your birth? You have no choice to wonder, where did I come from? Oblivious to where you will go after you die? How can you not question where you will end up? So those fundamental existential questions, I said, bring up the fundamental existential questions, not as an intellectual pondering, not as I'm going to write a book about it, but as a, a heart inquiry, as a, the Watteau, as a koan. Your inability to shatter this barrier of birth and death will suddenly arouse doubt, like a curled knot on your eyebrow, which you're unable to untangle or get rid of. Or Moomin talks about like swallowing uh, a ball, a hot ball, and it's stuck in your throat, and you can't swallow it, and you can't disgorge it. One day you will suddenly shatter this mass of doubt and realize that the term birth and death is useless garbage. The ancient worries said, worthies said, great doubt, great enlightenment, small doubt, small enlightenment, no doubt, no enlightenment. And I always don't like the word doubt there, great inquiry, great awakening. Small inquiry, small awakening. So it's that, that curiosity that's involved with not knowing and yet wanting to know. In the course of practice, the most fearful thing is to settle down into a stream of stagnation and attach to quiescence, becoming dry and lifeless, unknowing and ignorant, and detesting activity while taking pleasure in quietude. Since practitioners have always lived in big, noisy, buzzy, busy situations, experiencing quietude is like eating a candy and honey. But this is also like an exhausted person enjoying a long sleep. Yet, in the midst of stillness, we must discover this precious thing hidden under the lining of the garment. You can only resolve the great matter of birth and death in the midst of this stillness, while not knowing that you're in stillness. That is, we find a place of peace and calm and it feels so serene and nice, but we don't inquire further. And we just say, oh, it feels pretty good. I think I'll just have a nice sleep here. If you work to seek this great matter in stillness, then you'll never attain it. Don't seek. If you don't seek, then you are sure to get it. There are just so many. This particular uh, quote is from uh, Attaining the Way by Master Shen Ying. Translations were of Master Boshan, or by Guo. The next teacher is Master Su Yun. Su Yun was the most famous Chinese Chan master in, in the 20th century. Um, he was born, actually, in the 19th century, 1840 or so. And he died in 1959. 
So 10 years after the revolution. And he began practicing from an early age, and he was famous for doing all kinds of ascetic things and sitting for a long time and sitting through cold and stuff. But the essential thing is he became awakened at age 56. He had a deep experience. He was in a three-month retreat, three-month session, and it was you know late at night, they were having formal tea, and the person who was serving tea inadvertently splashed the hot tea on his hand. He dropped his cup and he heard it shatter. And at that moment, his conceptual mind shattered. But he practiced and taught for another 64 years. Now, <laughs> so he lived, he was famous for living to the age of 120. Um, and it's pretty well documented. <clears throat> you know, the Chinese always venerate, the Chinese tend to venerate the aged. And so, you know, sometimes I think they would add on a few years just to, to enhance someone's uh, venerability. He would hold an intensive session all over China. And he was practicing um, through the cultural or through the cultural revolution. Excuse me. He was practicing through the revolution of 1959. And he met Mao, and he was, you know, integrally in part of the enormous social upheavals that went on in China during those eras. Continually practicing, holding retreats, founding, rebuilding monasteries. Here's what he has to say. Our sect focuses on investigating Zen. And the purpose of investigating Zen is to illuminate the mind and see one's own self-nature, which means to thoroughly investigate and comprehend our original face. This investigation is called clearly realizing one's mind and thoroughly perceiving one's intrinsic nature. Since the time when the Buddha held up a flower and Mahakashapa realized awakening and Bodhidharma came to the East, the methods for entry into this Dharma door, door have been continually evolved. Most Zen adepts before the Chang and Song dynasties became enlightened after hearing a word or a phrase of Dharma. And Dharma transmission from master to disciple was merely a convergence of mind to mind. There often was no actual Dharma. Further, questions and answers in daily life were only extemporaneous occasions to untie entanglements, much like prescribing eight medicines for the right illness. But then after the Song dynasty, people did not have such good karmic capacities as their predecessors. They could not carry out what they had been said. For example, practitioners were taught to put down everything and not to think about good and evil, 
but they couldn't do it. And if they weren't thinking about good, they were thinking about evil. They weren't thinking about success, they were thinking about failure. Under these circumstances, the ancestors had no choice but to use poison against poison and taught practitioners to investigate the mind using the mind. When you begin observing Watteau, when you begin really getting curious, even if you must begin with a lifeless phrase, you must grasp it tightly without letting go of it, even for an instant, like a mouse trying to gnaw its way out of a coffin. The mouse must focus on one area and not stop until it gnaws through the coffin. In terms of practice, the objective is not to use a single thought to eradicate, excuse me, is to use a single thought to eradicate 10,000 thoughts. This method really is a last resort. (laughs) Just as if somebody had been severely poisoned and there was no other way to get the poison out except to open up the body. So to use the mind to penetrate the mind, to use thought to penetrate thought, and as Master Xinging often says, you start off with the conceptual mind, scattered, you bring it simpler, 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 down into one-pointed mind. If you're working on a koan, that one-pointed mind is the wato, is the mu, or whatever the koan is. Or if you're working on a shikantaza, that one point is the point of total stillness, the point of total um, stopping and with still bright alertness. All the koans are the same, he says. The answer to the word, who are you, who is walking, who is speaking, who is chanting, who is questioning, derives from one's mind. Mind is the source of all words. Thoughts arrive from the mind. Mind is the source of all thoughts. Innumerable dharmas are born out of the mind. Mind is the source of all dharmas. In fact, the source of words is the source of thought. The source of thought is the mind. To put it directly, the state of mind before any thought arises is the place of the koan. Hence, we should know that observing the koan, and again, going down to the place of still curiosity and observing that, observing the koan is contemplating mind. Your original face before your parents gave birth to you is the mind, is that which is observing the koan. What is my original face before my parents gave birth to me? The mind itself. So in looking at the writings of of masters over the the centuries, millennia, you you see there's a very different flavor because people's minds change a lot. So if you read the the Pali canon, it's very proscriptive. Um, Don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. 
If you read some of the other ones he's talking about, it's very spontaneous and extemporaneous and, and very much a, a, an instant meeting of minds with little dogma. But then as we go on and, and dharma becomes more settled and our minds become a little more confused, we see people have more and more and more words. And now in this day and age, our view of the world is so, apparently, so different <clears throat> than the view of the world in earlier eras that the way the Dharma is expressed is differently. We are very materialistic. We are very scientific. We are very skeptical. You know, we are very mechanical and rational. And other ages had their own obstacles. And so the, the Dharma was presented according to what seemed to work. Here is a biography from Chan Master Zueyan. Zueyan is also a Ming Dynasty teacher. And this is, this is his biography, excuse me, he is a 13th century teacher. Uh, so he's, he's in the Song Dynasty. <coughs> I left home at the age of five and became an attendant to a superior person. I was privy to the conversation with guests and I came to realize there is this matter of Dharma. And I came to have confidence in this matter. Then I began training in cross-legged Zen sitting. At 16, I received the precepts and <clears throat> became a monk. And at 18, I set out to travel far and wide on cert in foot in search of a teacher and realization. I was in the assembly of Preceptor Yuan of Xuanling Monastery, and I became fused into oneness from morning and night. I didn't go outside the front garden. I didn't glance to the left or right. I looked ahead no further than three feet. At the beginning of keeping my eye on this koan, the Mu character, and Mu, suddenly at the place where thoughts were arising, I began keeping my eye on Mu, looking at the source where the Mu arose from. And at this point, I had a spontaneous, the way this translated here, is reverse examination. And part of what I'm doing is trying to adapt the language a little bit it's on the fly. So reverse examination means turning the mind to look at the mind. Turning the mind to look right back at the source. Awareness looking at awareness is what they're calling reverse examination. And at that moment, the koan instantly became like cold ice, clear, peaceful, immobile, unshakable. Passing one day was like the split second required for flicking a finger. And during that time, I couldn't even hear the bells and the drums announcing the various monastery activities. So he'd entered a, a, a deep samadhi. And you know, he just says, I entered samadhi. 
I entered samadhi because I was looking at the, the essential nature here. I entered samadhi because I touched a place of such depth and stillness that I forgot about the world and life. At 19, I went to Ling Yin Monastery. I hung up my staff and robe. I met the recorder from, of incoming letters. And he said, you know, um, Chan Man, uh, Yue Yan. Yue Yan is his later name, so it's the name of the mountain in which he taught. But So I don't know what his, his earlier monk name was. But he said, Chan Man, this koan of yours is like dead water. It's useless. You're making the two characteristics of movement and stillness into a pair of pegs, into two extremes, two things that you're binding yourself with. When making a hands-on investigation of Zen, you must give rise to the sensation of, and the term the translator uses is indecision apprehension. And what that means is, I don't know the indecision, not knowing, and I'm trying to apprehend, looking into, looking into with a curious mind. Um, I think uh, looking into with curiosity might be a better way of saying it. When it's a small sensation of investigation, you get a small awakening. When it's a big sensation, you get a big awakening. And then he says, oh, this that really hit the mark. And I immediately let go of what I was practicing and began doing a different kind of koan. It was a continuum. In the East, the sensation of, of investigation. In the West, the sensation of investigation. Lengthwise, keeping an eye on the investigation. And breadthwise, keeping an eye on the investigation. But I was attacked in turn by torpor and distraction. And I wasn't able to obtain even a brief moment of purity. We all know that. I moved my place of Zazen to a position on the sitting platform a different monastery. And I agreed with seven monks that I would sit and quit sleep. I would never let my side touch the mat. Now, if any of you who knew knew Lakshay or people who did the three-year retreat, you know, they, in a three-year retreat, they have a box and through your retreat, you don't lie down. You, you, you sleep in your box. You sleep sitting up. <clears throat> Part of that is to, you know, to, to keep the alert mind of practice active, to, to question. And if you're half awake, half asleep, it's easier to hold the question. It's easier to look and investigate. So if you have the good fortune of insomnia, then it gives you an opportunity to have that alertness in the middle of the night. You can't sleep, but you're not quite awake, 
if, if the koan, if the fundamental question, <clears throat> if the, the, that which pulls you is deeply in your heart so that it's automatic, then during a sleepless night, you can practice very, very, very well. But if you don't have that, if you haven't practiced long enough or you haven't been curious enough or it hasn't entered into your heart, then, you know, on a sleepless night, you just thrash and turn and your mind is full of the usual random thoughts or dreams. But when this question of what is it, what is it that's real, what is it that's the source, what is it that's beyond birth and death, what is it that where did I come from, what is it that sees, what is it, and that curiosity, those existential questions about the very root of life burn, then, as this monk says, east, west, north, south, the question is there. My experience with this is that we're not machines. We can't, you know, there, there are times that people get into, that we can get into, where there is a deep, continuous samadhi. But everything comes and goes, including that. So I find what works, what's best, is to ponder, to ponder the existential questions so that there is some fuel to the investigation. If there's no... <clears throat> There's no burning question if it doesn't matter to you what happens when we die. If it doesn't matter to you why are we suffering so much. If it really is, then you know, we all get by. We will get by. No, no, no doubt about it. We'll get by. We'll get to the end of our life. But if those things matter, if they burn in the heart, it's a little different. Now, I also find that depending upon what I put in my mind, it makes a difference. So if I am reading and pondering Dharma, and especially Dharma I find inspiring and not just theoretical, then that alerts my mind. If I'm, you know, filling my mind with trivia, then my mind becomes, you know, kind of takes that flavor. So whatever... Whatever you put your intention on, the subsequent minutes, hours, days will carry the flavor of whatever you were intensely engaged in. So we all have probably had the experience of we're listening to some kind of music. The music ends ostensibly, but it just continues in our mind. And if you watch it, it continues and continues. Finally, it fades out, it disappears. Well, that's true with all things. So whatever we, we put our attention on with, with energy and curiosity begins to, to flavor, begins to, to color our life. And the Soto school, often they talk about that when you have that intention for reality, that intention to see the truth, that intention to be genuine, that intention to understand the roots of birth and death, and you are continually coming back to and practicing, then the truth begins to, like dew, like walking through dew, 
like walking through a fog, like walking through a mist, begins to slowly saturate your body. Or if you're sitting around a lot of incense, the incense gradually begins to infiltrate your clothing, the smell. So this guy said he was not going to lie down. And in this same group, there was a, um, a monk named Sue. He says, every day, at the top of the sitting cushion, he sat like an iron rod. When walking around the monastery grounds, he has both eyes wide open with his arms um, hanging down. Um, for, yeah, just a, but he was still like an iron rod. I wanted to speak with him. But when I came into his presence, I simply couldn't. I realized that for two years I hadn't slept with my body in a horizontal position, and I was suffering from being dazed and fatigued. Thereupon, in one fell swoop, I gave up all those painful practices, of uh, the, the practice of not lying down. And two months later, my poor health, my poor state of health was restored. Now, there are lots of conditions, the Buddha himself, lots of people who said, I really want to experiment and see what, what works for me. Ajahn Amaro, uh, our Thai forest monk tradition teacher, uh, when he was a student, didn't lie down for uh, a year or two. And Harada Roshi, after his teacher, Muman Roshi, died, didn't lie down for a year as a way of kind of honoring his teacher. So if you look at the literature, people have done these kind of things over and over again. Now, the Buddha, after doing ascetic practices of one sort or another for six years, came to the conclusion that, well, it would not lead to final liberation. So, and Ajahn Amaro and Harada Roshi, they don't do those practices forever but the fact they did those practices shaped and changed who they were. So we might do something that is really strenuous. Like we come to Sishin and we don't lie down for a week. We come to Sishin and we, we, we are um, uh, in the Zendo every break for a week. Well, that has its effect. And there are things that we can realize which we can't realize other ways. And yet, that is not the apex of practice. So this guy didn't lie down for two years. And then he said, you know, this is, this is impossible. And he gave the whole thing up. It took him two months to get back to full vigor. Um, and he says, if you want to, from the onset look, onset, look into this matter, cutting out sleep completely is no good. You must get some sleep. Only then will you have vigor. <laughs> now, we're kind of laughing because it's our basic assumption that, yes, you know, we all need this, we all need that. But what if we didn't have that assumption? What if, what if we really wanted to experiment without that particular assumption in our mind? 
One day and a quarter, I met the advanced uh, Sue, and then for the first time, I was able to approach him on intimate terms. I asked, last year, I was wanting to have a conversation with you, but you were definitely steering well clear of me. Why? Sue said, the true practitioner of the way doesn't even bother to cut their fingernails. So why would I find time for a useless conversation with you? <laughs> At that, I raised an issue. Right now, I'm trying to clear up my torpor and distraction, but with no results. Sue said, it's because you're still not fierce enough. Make your sitting cushion high, straighten your backbone, merge your whole body into oneness with a single koan. What torpor and distraction will there be to make into a problem? Relying on this, I, did, I continued practicing, and no longer aware of my body and mind, I forgot them both. It was coolly exhilarating for three days and nights. The afternoon of the third day, it was as if my mind were doing seated meditation And my, and my body was walking. So after three days of this, even in moving, even in the ordinary functioning of the monastery, he felt still and centered as though he were doing zazen. Once again, I happened to meet the Su, the teacher. He said, what are you doing here at this temple? And I said, I'm practicing the way. He said, well, just what are you calling the way? At that, I could give no answer. That put me into an even more of a stupor, or more of a trance, more of a questioning. I then was about to return to the zendo to do cross-legged sitting, and this time happened to meet him again. And he said, you only have to open your eyes wide and keep an eye on who is the one. Keep your eye on the koan. I was very excited by this. I just wanted to go back to the zendo and practice with it. And just as I was about to get up on the sitting cushion, right in front of me, suddenly opened up as if it were the earth fell away. At this time, there was no expert person to whom I could present my level of understanding for calibration and adjustment. So, it's not so clear from this translation. He was in a deep samadhi. He met this senior, senior student. The senior student said, what is the way? Why are you here? What is this way you're practicing? And that invoked, that enhanced, that stimulated his question even more. And he was kind of racing to go back to the zendo, and just as he was sitting down in his seat, he said, the earth opened up. That is, his mind opened up. All the, the crust that was around his mind cracked. It wasn't something that could be compared to any worldly characteristic. Right away, I got down from my seating, sitting position on the platform and visited Sue. When he saw me immediately, he said, congratulations, congratulations. 
He then clasped my arm, and we walked one time around the embankment of willow trees in front of the gate. All the actions of daily life between heaven and earth, all the things of the world, things seen with the eye and heard with the ears, things I had up to now disliked and discarded, as well as ignorance and the defilements. From the onset, I saw they were my own wonderful brightness and flow from my own true nature. For half a month, no other characteristics of movement, not even my thoughts, arose. Unfortunately, I did not encounter an honored monk with the eye of an expert. I ought to have done da da da. But I got, you know, he got caught again, as people often do. One day I was walking in the Buddha Hall, and when I raised my eyes, I saw an ancient cypress tree. When it entered my field of vision, I had an awakening. Since objects that I had heretofore apprehended and things that were obstructions in my breast were tossed away and scattered. It was like coming out of a dark room into the bright sunlight. Henceforth, I had no doubt about birth. I had no doubt about death. I had no doubt about the Buddha. I had no doubt about the ancestors. For the first time, I was able to take in the old man standing in the monastery and say, <laughs> the translation here is, sock it to him, 30 whacks of the stick. <laughs> that mean, what, what that means is he was able to, to face the people who he had been scared of and just said, you know, right here, I'm with you. So the point of all, all of this is, first off, this particular person had three or four deep awakening experiences. Hakuan, it said, had seven or eight majors and, and a number, innumerable minor awakening experiences. So the, the way it goes is we practice from wherever we are, and we have some insight. Insight into the way things are, insight into the nature of reality, insight into now. Some to some degree or other, our opinions, our view, our small-mindedness, our separation, our duality has a crack in it. And the crack can be a big crack, it can be a small crack. But it still has a crack. And sometimes just seeing through that crack convinces us, shows us, reveals to us that there are things that are possible beyond what I give have understood things that are possible beyond what my mind can conceive of. And if we have that crack and we keep practicing, sometimes that crack will widen or another crack will appear. But it continually takes ongoing investigation, ongoing effort. So we have one level of understanding and it's always at the beginning. There's always more to see. So we may have a, a level of understanding and we have a glimpse into the oneness of things or the, uniform, the, the unity of things, into the um, uh, you know, emptiness of things, into the luminous nature of things. I have a little glimpse of that. 
And then what the mind does is that all, it, it comes in and looks at that and says, I know, I understand, I got this. And right there, I know, I understand, I got this, we already have divided the world into me and what I know, me and what I see, me and... And so right there is already that separation, and that is exactly the place we have to then keep practicing. So there are different aspects and levels of practice. We, we open with the intensity of practice, with the intensity of investigation, in its own time, not up to us, in its own time, but we set the groundwork with our curiosity and our, our uh, uh, intensity, our, our intent. Something opens up, we recognize something, And then we have to also go beyond that. We have to forget that in order for the next thing to drop away, the next thing to open up. So we could say that there is an insight that we all have, that we know, and then we have to have an insight into what we don't know, what can't be known. And then we have to have an insight of how does what we don't know and can't be known actually function. And then it goes around and around because it becomes more and more curious, interesting. So wherever we're at in practice, whether we've been practicing for 50 minutes or 50 years, we always are at the beginning. We always are just beginning this exploration. And there's always, I guarantee you, there is always a richer, larger, so to speak, vista we never arrive. And in this little reading, you know, he talks about three months. He was in a deep samadhi, and you know, his mind became very clear and luminous. But then that faded, and he had to keep, keep coming back. So, in case you think you've reached the end of the road, you haven't. In case you think that all of the, the talks that we're giving about, you know, the, the, the kind of rational talks that we're giving about practice and is, is talking about the ultimate, it's not. It's a great mystery. And the I know cannot penetrate the great mystery. The I know cannot penetrate the great mystery. I know is knowing. And the great mystery is knowing, not knowing or not knowing. Knowing and not knowing both are mysterious. So it only behooves us to have humility as we are going forward, realizing, oh, I'm still a beginner. There's so much more to see. I have to let go of what I think I know because it's already part of my body, already part of my being. 
So I don't need to worry about knowing it or not knowing. It's just kind of who I am. And I go on with a fresh mind, with a beginner's mind. One of the, uh, the texts that I was reading from is a, what we'll call the Chan Whip analogy. And a um, person who collected this said, I want to collect all the things I can that are inspiring for practice. And I want to put them all in one book so I can read them and be reminded and inspired. So this is a whole collection of stories, biographies um, that was written with that intention of whipping, whipping us on. Not in the sense of flagellating oneself, but in the sense of spurring on a hard-running horse. So may we all accept our horse-like nature and continue in the race. Not a good analogy. But get, you get the idea. Page five in the PDF handbook. <laughs>